powerful word. Every word of those songs, powerful messages. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Now I want you to, before we release the children, I've noticed some special people in this room, meaning people that are visiting us either for the first time or this might be their second time. If you look in front of you, if you look beside you, if you look behind you, and you see someone you have never seen before, I want you to give them a warm embrace and welcome them into the house of faith. Amen? Come on, just turn around, look front, look sides, look back. If there's someone you've never seen before, as a matter of fact, if they're across the aisle, you can walk across the aisle. Just don't start walking all over the place because then it's hard to get you back. But get a hold of someone that's in close proximity. Let them know how we appreciate them being here. We're going to present them later on. There's going to be a visitor announcement, but we want to let them know now how we are so blessed to see them in this room with us, worshiping Jesus this morning. Woo! Come on, this is doing life, folks. This is doing life. Amen. Now, if you were hugged and you're uncomfortable being hugged, I just want to warn you, it's a little late the warning, but we are hugging church. We are kissing church. We are an embracing church. We just love people, man. We love them. We love them. Because the love of God has obsessively captivated our hearts and so we're obsessed with that love and we find for ways to display it and so if we get a hold of you don't be afraid don't take it as an offense we just love you amen all right we want to release our children we have nursery those of you that are visiting and even the people from the house children ages infant through three we have nursery you can it's going to be someone here that's going to take your kids you can usher them right to the nursery you can go with them, take them to the nursery, and then the children from four to six, four to six. Now, I want to tell the children from seven on up, Sister Evelyn apologizes. She's very sorry that for the month of January, we haven't had a class for you, but February, she promised me that we will have a class for the children Seven on up. Amen. So bear with us for another couple of weeks. Si alguien en esta casa entiende mejor el español y necesita un equipo de traducción y no se lo han hecho disponible, si usted levanta su mano, nosotros se lo llevamos y hay alguien allá arriba que es tremenda traductora. No sé quién es porque mis ojos están un poquito opacos, pero alguien, yes, yeah, somebody's up there. Darcy's, okay, Darcy's. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, now that we got all that out of the way, I want you to open up your Bibles. First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. If you have a Bible, if you don't, this should be one right in front of you in that little slot in front of your Pew, there should be a Bible there. You feel free to take one of those. First Peter, that's towards the end of the Bible. You got to go all the way towards the end of the Bible to find First Peter. Chapter 4, 
and we're going to be reading from verses 7 through 11. Now, I didn't know I was going to preach today, because technically I wasn't supposed to preach. Pastor Margie was supposed to preach. So, just keep her in your prayers. She's, she, needs, she needs healing. Amen. And she, she was struggling with some pain for the last couple of days. So, so, she asked me to cover for her today. And so, I've spoken on these verses before, and I've spoken on this topic before, but I truly believe that God has a new, fresh word for us this morning. Though we've read these verses and though we've probably heard messages on these verses, even from myself or others, I believe God has a fresh breath. How many know that the Word of God is not simply inspired by the Spirit, but it is expired? Not expired, but E-S, expired, meaning is breathe, is the breath of God. I mean, that to me really takes the whole meaning of how God put together the Word, takes it to another level. To know that the Word of God was the breath of God. See, because with inspirations, there's always room for us to, our emotions to get involved and, and our feelings to get involved and our own opinions to be incorporated in what is inspired. But when God breathes it, you can't mess with that. That's coming from his heart straight to our heart. So the word of God is aspire, is breathed by God. And so... Because it's breathed by God, every time we read it, there's something new that we learn. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 11 through 7. We read in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now I'm reading from the ESV. Usually I read from the NIV. And a lot of you have the KJV. Whatever Bible you says, the meaning is primarily the same. So which, whichever version you're reading, as long as you're not reading the Book of Mormons or some other book or some other, or, or, or the Quran, yeah, because then you're not going to find these there. So I want to make sure you have a Holy Bible in front of you. How many know that the Holy Bible is the only authority? That no matter what Muslims say, no matter what anyone else says, the holy word of God, the 66 books put, taken into the canon of scripture, that is the word of God. And so how many know, Pastor Margie has been teaching, there's no error in that. Anybody been in the English class? There is no error. There is no error in that. It is God, authoritative word. And so... Now that I gave that, let's read. The end of all things is at hand. Some of you might read the end of all things is near. Same thing. Therefore, be self-controlled. If you like to note on your Bible, you can underline that word, self-control. Self-control. And be sober-minded. Now, in some of your versions, the order is opposite. In some of your versions, it says be sober-minded or be clear-minded. And then it says self-control. But for the sake of the, this, the version that I use, I'm just going to go with my list, okay? It's the same thing, no matter which way you put it. These are things that we need to understand and we need to be practicing. So, be self-control and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without rumbling. Amen? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Amen. You're not greeting people just because you have an obligation to do it. Amen. We show hospitality because we mean to embrace that person and greet that person. We mean to invite that person. Don't invite anyone to your house and oh my God, oh look, now I gotta spend money. Now I gotta I gotta go buy groceries and now that 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 messed up my budget. Oh my god. Because Pastor now wants people to be invited to the home, and so now I gotta follow this. And and uh, if you're gonna do it that way, don't do it. Don't do it. Because the word instructs us to show hospitality without grumbling. Amen. And as you have, each one of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified, honored through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so I've spoken on this topic before, and I'm going to speak on it again. What would you do if you found out that your last day on earth is today? Just think about it. What are some of the things that you would do if you found out that your last day on earth would be today? You ever heard of prisoners that have been sentenced to death row? And on the day or the night before they're going to be executed, they grant that prisoner whatever he desires to eat, the last meal. And so how many know prison food is not good food? But that last meal for that person that's about to die it's probably the best meal that person has had in years because they, they satisfy the wishes of that person because after 24 hours from that moment, that person will no longer be around. So the question would be to you, if you knew ahead of time that this is your last day on earth, what are some of the things that you would do? Anybody wants to take a shot at that? This is open right now. Elder Abby? Say goodbye to your family. Anybody else? That's good. Uh, my man, um, yes, yes. I confused Joseph, uh, Jonathan, Jeremiah. Jonathan, tell me, what would you do if this was your last day? He would do what? He would make his mom cook the best meal, the one that he likes the most for him. Wow, that's, that's being honest. Anybody else, what would you do? Just one more, one more shot. Sister Stacy. You would get all your... I'm sorry, my hearing is bad. Your seven children to your house and talk to them about Jesus one last time. Wow. Amazing. And so all of these, really, 
are valid things that we would consider doing, these and so many more, right? I know me personally, um, everybody can go home. I'm staying right here. I'm staying at this altar. You know, after I say goodbyes to my family, this is where I want to be. So that by this time tomorrow, God takes me right from here. Because I want to be in the house of God. And so there's so many other things that people would do if we knew that today was our last day. Unfortunately, we don't get an announcement telling us today is your last day. Unless you've been diagnosed with a terminal disease, and even then, doctors cannot guarantee when you take your last breath. I've heard of people that have been given a short amount of period to live because they have a cancer, terminal disease, and yet they've outlived what the doctors had assumed would be their time. And so even in those situations, we really cannot predict when is our last day. But what Peter's telling us here, we got to live every day as though it was our last. Now, this week, I don't know if it was yesterday morning or Friday morning at 4 a.m. in a town of Mississippi, folks were awakened by the winds of a tornado. And so their houses were blown away, property destroyed. I think there was four lives. The last time that I heard there was four lives that perished in that tornado. A week or a week and a half ago, an earthquake in Italy. And recently it has even caused some mudslides. The earthquake in Italy, there was a hotel that came down and they had counted so far 29 people that had perished between hotel staff and also guests. And they were still searching for survivors or uh, people that had died as a result of that. As we turn on the television and we watch the news, we hear of all the violence that is going on around this nation. I mean, sometimes I just hate to watch the news because you don't get good news. You don't get gospel anymore. Gospel means good news. The bulk of what you watch and what you hear in the news is negative, is violence, is death, is bloodshed. And so when we turn on the television, we hear of all the violence. We hear of, of young people being shot to death. We hear drug violence, gang violence. We hear so much going on, even in our community. We've had situations recently where young people have lost their lives because of gun violence. And so... You hear the news or you look in your surroundings and we are surrounded with signs of death. We are surrounded with news of death. And so if we are not, if we don't have our minds set on the promises of God, we can easily become fearful and hopeless. As a matter of fact, we're living in a time where due to an election, you got a bunch of people, half of the nation is filled with fear because they, they don't know what's going to happen. And so, and so if you listen to all of this, you can easily be, dis be distracted, amen, and you could easily lose hope, amen. And, and I can understand society feeling hopeless. I just have a difficulty when the people of God are, expre are expressing hopelessness 
Because the people of God, we must understand, we are part of a greater kingdom, and we are part of a king and of a ruler, a man who is sovereign over any political system and any political situation that any nation could be under. And so when we know that we belong to God and we believe in the promises of God and we embrace the promises of God, there should be no room for us to feel helpless, hopeless, or fearful. Now, there is a natural reaction of hopelessness at times. There's a natural reaction or, 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 or that fear of self-preservation that comes naturally. But whenever hopelessness and whenever fear becomes such a part of your daily life that that's all you think of, then there's a problem with that because that's not the way that God want, intended for us to live. Jesus said, I came to, give, to bring you life and to bring it to you more Abundantly. So even when we're surrounded with all this violence and all the things that are happening around us, we should be living an abundant life. And we should be enjoying life. But in enjoying life, we must always keep at heart and at mind that this could be my last day on the face of the earth. And so I must live every day as though it was my last. It's not being morbid. It's not that you're living and you're waking up that morning, oh my God, I might die today, so I better do. I bet no, 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 that's not. You just must remember that the end, because Peter uses these sobering words as we start reading these verses. He says, I want you to remember that the end is at hand. Now, in today's society, people would mock those words because they say, well, Peter wrote those words over 2,000 years ago, or, or close to 2,000 years ago. And so, nothing has happened. Christ has ascended. He's in heaven. He has not returned. 2,000 years later, we're still living life. So why should we even believe those words? Now, there's one thing that the world does not understand that we must understand. And that is the way that God views time and the way that we view it is totally different. God views time and actually the Apostle Peter writes in the second letter of Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, I want you to understand, my dear friends, that one day to God is like a thousand years and a thousand years are as one day. Remember that scripture? One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. And because Christ has not returned, and what Peter promised has not occurred, it does not mean that he goes on to say, it does not mean that God is slow in keeping his promise. As many have come to the conclusion, many have concluded, the world mocks, that's not going to happen. They've been saying that for the last 2,000 years. I've been hearing it for the last 58 years since I was born. I was, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, the world's coming to the end, the world's coming. And so I could easily, we could easily be, be uh, enticed to, to disbelieve what God has already established in his word. But if we keep in mind and we keep in context the fact that to God, time is, 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 is non-existent. 
And so we must understand that though these words were written 2,000 years ago, yet they could happen, at, the fulfillment could happen at any given moment. And so, we must live every day as though it was our last. I read some statistics, and they say that nearly 7,000 people die or lose their life every day in this nation. Now, I don't know how old these statistics were, but if they're pretty, pretty recent, that's a lot of people dying every day just in one nation. Think of worldwide how many people are dying daily. Now, we must not only think of us dying, but we must think that at any given moment, we might not even see death. We might live to see the return of the Lord. And so whether it is that we die or whether it is that Christ is coming, I want you to know that it could happen today. It could happen at any given moment. And because it could happen at any given moment, and we don't have any control of when that happens, amen, we must live our lives accordingly. And so, there's five things that I want to share with you as to how we can live our lives as if today was our last day. Bear with me while I take off this jacket. I want to salute our police officer who's in the back. Salute you. I didn't mean to put you out there, sir, but I noticed you, and I just wanted to thank you for your service. We want to thank you from the bottom of our heart for the work that you folks do in protecting our city. I just noticed the, the badge, and I, was, I felt prompted to do that. We don't do that enough, folks. We don't do that enough. We're living in a day where people are just out criticizing and bashing and these are the guys that put their life on the line daily. And so we want to salute you and thank you. And please pass on the message to your fellow officers. Now, because I did that, please don't stop coming. Stop by every so often. I won't do that all the time, sir. So the first thing he tells us is, based on my, the list, the way that I put the list together, now, again, you could, you could shift this based on whatever uh, version you're reading, but we're going to follow my version today, the ESV. That's what I'm using. The first thing he tells us is we got to be self-controlled. We have to be... Let me just make sure I got it right. Be self-controlled. Okay, self-control. What is self-control? Self-control means that one is to restrain his emotions or his behavior. It means that one is to bridle one's passions. 
It means that you want to enforce boundaries upon yourself. Now, imagine if we lived in a society where there were no boundaries and where there was no self-control. Sometimes when we look at the news, we think that we're heading in that direction, right? We see so many things happening that seem to be out of control. Even the people, the lifestyles that are being embraced and the lifestyles that are being promoted, it's out of control. And so, Peter says, in the midst of this culture that you live in, in the midst of this, this, this society that you live in, I was telling my brother yesterday, you know, Sam, I feel like we are, we are like, I'm really believing what the Bible says. We are sojourners. We are foreigners in this, in this land. And I'm getting to, to understand that more clearly as time goes by. We believers, those of us that choose to live our lives under self-control, and those of us who choose to be sober-minded, society sees us as foreigners, as though we don't belong. Because society today is living out of control. The culture that we're living in is living out of control. Television, the media is promoting a lifestyle that is out of control. Do what you want. Do it as you want. Do whatever pleases you. There is no, no reason for you to think of consequences. Just live life. Enjoy it. Like Ricky Martin says, live la vida loca. Just live life crazy. Do the wild thing. You've ever heard that? Wild thing. And so the more we see what's going on around us, the more we're able to appreciate the words of Christ and even the, the disciples when they remind us, listen, you're going to be hated in this world. You're going to be despised in this world. This world is going to mock you. This world is going to persecute you. And some of you, this world is even going to kill you. They're going to put you to death. Because if they did that to me, Jesus told his disciples, if they did that to the master, then you can rest assured that they're going to do it to the disciple. They're going to do it to the student. They're going to do it to the follower. And let me tell you something. We might not be um, at risk of losing our lives physically, but our faith is being bombarded. Our mind is being bombarded constantly as we hear all these outside voices trying to have an influence in us. And if we are not firmly grounded in the word of God, that's why these studies that Pastor Margie's given in the English class on Wednesdays, and I'm teaching the Spanish class, they are vital, they're important. The importance of getting into the word of God. How is it that the word of God is a lifesaver for us in the midst of this torrential flood that we're experiencing of immorality, of sin, of depravity, of violence, the word of God is really our only life source. And so we have to, if we're going to live self-controlled lives, amen, the Bible says that then we have to also be sober-minded. In other words, we have to transform our minds. We have to submit our minds to that transformation that the Apostle Paul speaks in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. When he speaks of the world, he's not talking about the, the, the globe. He's talking about a world system. That is corrupt, that is contaminated, that is defiled, that is bent 
into, into despising and rejecting and hating and possibly killing anything that's connected to Christ and anything that's connected to God and anyone that wants to live a holy life. Amen. This, this world system is out to try to destroy, if not our lives, then definitely our faith. And so the apostle Peter gives us fair warning. says, as we live towards the end, because Jesus said that these were some of the signs that wouldn't happen in this day and age. I mean, I was totally blown away. Because you know that I'm reading the Bible as I like to do at the beginning of the year. I like to read it straight through, the whole Bible. And I challenge my Spanish class. I'm challenging the English class. I'm challenging you that, you that don't come to class. Every Christian <laughs> should discipline themselves to read the word of God from cover to cover during the course of one year. Is not an impossible goal. If you put down the inquire, if you put down the star, if you put down Facebook, and if you put down all that social media, and you take some of that time that you dedicate to stuff that's not edifying to your spirit, and you say, I'm going to discipline myself to read the word of God. There are so many one-year plans that you will find that will help you and guide you. And they make the reading of the word of God so simple and easy and attainable for whoever desires. It is important. It is imminent for any believer that wants to survive and that wants to reach that finish line and wants to maintain the faith, it is, you cannot avoid doing it without reading the Word of God. Because the Word of God is what's going to keep you. See, we're living in a culture that seeks to inebriate you, to make you drunk. The music seeks to make you drunk. The movies, Hollywood, seeks to make you drunk. I was just appalled two days ago. I was watching the news and they showed this video of a protest being held close to the house of the newly elected vice president. I don't know how many of you saw that. And it was people just chanting and screaming and there was this young man standing on the roof of a car with hot pants, stockings, shaking himself in a very vulgar manner. And as he was doing that, facing towards the vice president's house, the crowd was chanting, come out, Daddy Pence, come and dance with us. Come, Daddy Pence, come and dance with us. Now, if you read your Bible, see, some of you are looking blank right now because you don't read your Bible. But if you read your Bible and you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that is the same attitude that was prevalent right before the judgment of God came and destroyed two cities. You got to read the story. When you read the story and you look at what's happening today, you say, wow, Jesus was not kidding. The prophets were not kidding. The apostles were not joking when they said, look for these signs because these signs are foretelling of the, the end that is near. And the word of God established that in the same manner that it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, that would be the lifestyle of mankind right before the end. Watching the woman's march yesterday, didn't watch everything, but watching some of Hollywood's elite and the vocabulary 
of hatred, the vulgar vocabulary that was being used, and how thousands of people were just applauding. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking even back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, outside of, what was that crazy time in the 60s that they had that Woodstock? <laughs> outside of Woodstock, I don't remember in my lifetime seeing this type of behavior so blatant. So we are, folks, we are living in the end times. We are living in the last days. And so we have to discipline ourselves to be self-control and be sober-minded. Let's go back to self-control. What are the things that you would do if you knew you would not be on the face of the earth by this time tomorrow? What are some of the behaviors you would change? What are some of the changes you would do in your life if you knew that by this time tomorrow, by 11.15 tomorrow, is that 11.15? Or is it 10.15? Because I could preach another two hours if it's 10.15. Is that 11.15 up there? Because I see 10.15. That clock is, it, it got converted. That clock is, it got converted. It's, oh, okay, 11.13. That's the wicked one up there. It's 11.13. But if by this time tomorrow you knew you weren't going to be here, what changes would you make in your life? Truth of the matter is that we can talk about the world, but I'm not so concerned about the world as I am about the church. Because if we look at the landscape of Christianity today, many people in the church are living as though the end is nowhere near. Life has gotten a hold of us to the extent that we are living many times not even remembering that the end is near. Many people in the church are still clinging to their old sinful behavior. They're still clinging to their old sinful nature. They want to experience the new man, the new birth, the new creation, but they don't want to let go of the old creation. They want to serve God and they want to serve the world. And so if we are to be ready and prepared for the end that is near, we must make a decision. We must make a choice. And it's a life and death choice. We must decide we're either going to follow Jesus and live for Christ or we're going to serve the world, amen, and die in condemnation. Can't Serve God and serve mammon, serve money, serve your career, serve your uncontrollable passions. No, if you're going to serve God and you're going to be that new creature that Christ said that he would make you out to be, then you have to be self-controlled. Now, when I say self-control, I must note that self-control here is not solely reliant on our own power and effort. When the Bible speaks about self-control, it's speaking to a group of people that no longer live, but Christ lives in them. And so when Christ lives in you, then you have the ability, you have the potential, you have the power to take authority and take control over those things that controlled your life prior to Christ living in you. So the Apostle Peter is addressing a group of people that might have forgotten 
that Christ lives in. And he says, listen, we're living in the, in, near the end. You have to remember Christ lives in you. And because Christ lives in you, you, you cannot let yourself go by your sinful desires and your sinful relations. Now, you know what's, what's great about these verses? I want to tell you something. These verses follow, if you read the first few verses in the chapter, Jesus is addressing issues of legalism. Or Peter is addressing issues of, of legalism as he's, in, as he's inspired by the Spirit of God. He's addressing issues of legalism. He's addressing issues where, where the, the Jews that converted, they wanted to continue to require for Christians to continue to practice the legalities of the old covenant. If you read the first few verses, it speaks, it addresses the issue of circumcision and how is it that many people were trying to make that a requirement for salvation. And so right after that, Peter goes on to read these verses. And so as I was reading this, and this, is, this I've never preached before, this, this part of the message, because this was something that I learned even as I was studying for this last night. I, 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 the Spirit of God just told me, listen, there's a connection between legalism and the world. Because legalism seeks to put on a facade, to put on a face of righteousness, of holiness. But actually, is nothing more than hypocrisy. Because you act holy. I mean, you all look like very good Christians this morning. Let me tell you something. Everyone in this room, I look at you and I say, wow. What a man and what a woman of God. You look so Christian-y this morning. But you know, I can't see beyond that facade. The only one that knows what's in your heart is the Spirit of God. And so what Peter is saying, listen, listen, don't simply try to live your religion because he's not talking to sinners here. He's talking to the church. Don't try to live your religion on the outside. Because if you do, you're not going to be able to control the old nature. You're going to be one thing when you're in front of the people of God, and you're going to be another thing when you're on your own. And so what he's saying is, remember, you have to be self-controlled. What is on the outside must be a reflection of what is on the inside. For from the abundance of the heart, Everything that comes out should come from the abundance of the heart. And let me tell you something. When we try to put a facade of something that we're not on the inside, sooner or later it's going to be exposed. It's a matter of time. The Bible has established it clearly. Our sin will be exposed. It will, it, it will expose us. And so Peter's saying, don't be religious. Be self-controlled. Don't act holy here. Act holy when you're out there and temptation is trying to get a hold of you. Tell the devil, tell sin, no. You don't have a hold on me because I have the spirit of God in me. And because I have the spirit of God in me, I am self-controlled. Amen. Hallelujah. Self-control. Self-control, what is it? A self-controlled Christian is not controlled by sinful desires or lust. He may make money, even good money, but he will never love money. He may own material things, but he doesn't value those things more than he would value God and family. 
He enjoys life. But his hobbies and entertainment don't dominate so much of his time and attention in such a way that he would be neglectful with his time with the Lord and with family. A self-controlled Christian doesn't get rattled and fly off the handle when things don't go his way or when he encounters problem. In other words, he's not short-fused, short-tempered, easily riled. Self-controlled Christian is one that is spirit-controlled. So the first thing we got to do if we're going to live life like this might be the last day before Christ comes or before he calls us is we got to be self-controlled. The second thing, sober-minded or clear-minded. The Greek word that Peter uses here for sober-minded or clear-minded is the same word that Mark chapter 5 speaks of when the demon-possessed man was delivered from the legion. Remember that encounter that Jesus had with this demon-possessed man? And Jesus asked him, what's your, what's your name? And he says, my name is Legion. This is the guy that started screaming before Jesus even made it to the shore. He says, Jesus, why, why are you even coming here? What do you have against me? Why are you bothering me? Leave me alone. See, when we're living self-controlled lives, demons see us from afar and they flee. When we're living out-of-control lives, demons are just waiting for, ooh. You just wait till you get out of that service. You wait till you meet up with so-and-so. <laughs> Everything you did this morning, washed away. It's worthless because I'm just waiting for you. But when you have self-control and you're sober-minded, demons see you from afar. And they flee. And so, sober-minded is the same phrase that is used when Jesus delivered, delivered this, this man that was possessed. It says that after he was delivered... He was in his right mind. He was clear-minded. So if we're self-controlling, if we're sober-minded, that means we have been set free from sin. We have been set free from what, what, what propels sin, what triggers sin, what entices us to sin. We have control because now we have a mind that is sober. What is the contrary to sober? Drunk, being drunk. How many know that when you get drunk, I pray no one here gets drunk. And I pray no one here gets high. But if anybody ever got high or you ever experienced drunkenness, you know that you lose control of your emotions, of your behavior, sometimes even of your bodily functions. We used to be in a church where I grew up, and this brother who backslid, he went and rebelled against God. But his family would remain in church. Every so often, his, his son, which was my best friend, they would come into the service and say, come get your dad. He's outside. And my friend would have to leave the service and go outside and go get his dad, bring him into the church, and basically bathe him because his dad would lose control of everything because that's what happens when you get drunk. You have no control. As a matter of fact, you do things that then when you come out of that drunkenness or out of that high, you say, but how in the world did I do this? Sometimes we get ourselves in trouble. Many of the people that are behind prison, they're behind prison because, because they committed a crime while they were inebriated, while they were drunk. Because drunkenness causes you to lose control. It causes you to lose your mind. It causes you to do things that you would not do in your right mind. 
And so that's why it's important for us to be sober, not to be drunk. What are the things that can make us drunk? It's not only alcohol and drugs. If you listen to the wrong music, you get drunk. If you watch the wrong movies, you could easily get drunk. If you're associating with the wrong people, bad influence, they could easily make you drunk. And so these are all things that we have to avoid as we are self-controlled and sober-minded. These are the things that we need to stay away from so that we'll be able to live our lives as though today was the last and be able to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God. The third thing that he mentions, besides being clear-minded. But before I, before I go, I want to read this illustration on clear-mindedness. Those of you that are sports fans, especially those of you that are football fans, and those of you whose teams are still in the playoff, big deal. <laughs> but I just want to read this for all of us. I don't care. I wish you the best. My team is not in it, so I could care less. But think of it this way, and this is where I think of my team. I wish my quarterback would do this more often. Think of a quarterback. He's in the playoff, a football game. There's under two minutes left. We saw this last week with uh, Aaron Rodgers. Uh, and all the Cowboy fans here, they would hate to hear the story, but that's what he did last week, exactly what I'm going to say. There's under two minutes left in the game. You're reliving this nightmare. All the Cowboy fans, re just relive it. His team is behind, and he needs to move the ball 80 yards to score the winning touchdown. And he knows that if his team doesn't score, or even if it's a field goal, he knows that if they don't score, they will lose the game. They go home. There is no more tomorrow for them. And so, just as cool as a cucumber, that quarterback quickly yet methodically moves his team down the field. He throws a series of passes. He throws a series of passes. He doesn't throw them down the middle. He throws them to the side because he knows that the time that he has is limited. If he throws it down the middle and they get tackled in the field of play and they don't have no more timeouts, guess what? The clock is going to run out. So he has to throw it to the sides, and he's got to be precise because the defensive team is thinking the same thing. So the receiver catches the ball, steps out of bounds to stop the clock and give the team an opportunity for another play. Finally, with time running out, the quarterback takes a snap. Defensive linemen are blitzing towards him. He's running sideways. I don't know how he does it. That is a special gift. You just can't run sideways and throw the way this guy threw. I don't want to mention his name because I don't, I don't want people to get more hurt than what they already are. But this guy, he did it to us the week before. Yeah, he did it to us. So, so I, I feel your pain. I can empathize and sympathize with you because he did it to my team the week before. And so he throws the ball with the strength so many yards down the field. Receiver catches it, goes out of bounds. Field goal, kicker comes in, kicks the field goal, game is over.
Now, what caused that quarterback to execute those plays with so precision? In the middle of stress, in the middle of the heat, he maintained a calm, a cool, and collected attitude. I cannot believe this one quarterback, and I'm not going to mention names. This dude gets sacked. Before he even gets up on his feet, he's calling a timeout. And I was saying, oh, Eli Manning, if you would only watch his tapes. If you would only watch this guy. He's calling timeout while he's on his knees. Just got hit, got slammed to the ground, and he's calling a timeout. His mind is sober. How many, how many understand where I'm going? I'm not trying to give you a football story. I'm trying to make a connection as to what God expects of us and how God expects, expects us to live in this end time. We have to keep our minds and our attitudes calm, cool, and collected. You can't go on Facebook because your candidate was not elected and start sending messages. Oh, my God, I feel so hopeless. Oh, my God, I don't know what we're going to do. If you're a Christian, shame on you. We are to be sober-minded. We are to live our lives calm, cool, and collected. We are to believe what the psalmist lived, and he left it for us to learn from. If a thousand fall on my feet and ten thousand on my right-hand side, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Moving on up. So, clear-minded, sober-minded. What was the first one? Self-control. I'm just testing you guys. And then, what is your behavior to be? If you're clear-minded and you're self-control, there's a behavior that follows that. And so he goes on in verse 8 and he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. The word earnestly there means fervently. It doesn't mean a cold, casual, laid-back love. I love you because you love me, but if you don't love me, I don't love you. No, he's talking fervently. He means, he means love one another. Even if you have disagreements, even if there's things that you do that get in someone's nerve or they get un under your skin, love one another fervently. And he, he begins that by using this term above all, meaning above all things, make it the top of your list. Put it at the priority. Above all things, love one another. We're talking about doing life and having community, right? Loving one another is extremely important. Last Sunday's message was about us starting to practice this in-house. Love one another. Why? Why must we love one another? What does it do? According to that verse. What does it do when we love one another? It covers. <laughs> Did you hear that? When we love one another, it covers a multitude of sin. You know what that means? It means I'm going to love you in spite of what you did and what you said to hurt me. That's what, really what it mean, means. It means I'm going to 
love you no matter what. I still love you. Why? Why am I to love you if you've done me so wrong? Because it covers a multitude of sin. Now, it's not talking about covering the multitude of sin of the person that you're loving. It's going to cover a multitude of your own sin. Because what you think others have done to you, guess what? You have also done to others. There's nobody in this room right now. I don't care how holy you are, and I don't care how self-righteous you feel, and I don't care how much you read your Bible and how much you pray every day. There's no one in this room that is free from this sin. We have all done one another wrong at one time or another. And if we haven't done one another wrong, we've done someone wrong. And so if we are to expect those people to forgive us and to love us, and even if they don't, we have a duty, a responsibility. If we're living prepared and living as though this was the last day on earth, we are required to love even those that have hurt us, that have wounded us, that have spoken negatively against us, those that have, have been scoffers against us, those that have criticized us, those that have tried to seek to put down our reputation. We are to love them because as we love them, God, in returns, covers the multitude of sin that we ourselves have committed. So love one another earnestly. The word earnestly there is an expression that is used in athletics. When Peter says earnestly there, he's speaking about, he's, he's using the, 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 the metaphor of a, of a galloping racing horse as he's reaching Towards the end of the race, you see those horses, they're stretching their front legs and they're stretching their bodies because they all, and they're stretching their neck because they, even if they win by a head, their goal is to win. And so they're exercising all their muscles and stretching them to a place of discomfort simply because they see the goal before them and they want to make it to the end. He addresses this using it as a racer who's running a race. You see how racers, when they're running a race, when they're reaching the final, amen, the, the finish line, they usually stretch out their chest. I can't do mine that well, amen, because everything else stretches, amen. But you know what I mean, amen. Stretch out the chest, get in, come out. Amen. Stretch out the chest. Because what they do when they stretch out their chest, they're stretching out their muscles and trying to make it. They want to be the first one to break that tape finish line. So Paul is saying, if we're going to live our lives like this is our last day, or Peter is saying, if we're going to live our lives and understand that the end is near and we have to live our lives this way, then we must... Love in such a way that we're going beyond what we can do. So you can't, you can't give this love in and of yourself. The love of Christ must be in you. This is not arrows. This is not phileo love. This is agape love. This is a love that's able to stretch you beyond your own limitations. And is able to make you not only love your friends and your brothers and sisters, but is able to even make you love your enemies. Fervent love. But before I love someone else, it says love one another. So it is important that we understand this. We must love one another. I'm almost there. The next thing he says, if we're going to live as though the end is near, we need to show hospitality. Verse number nine. 
show hospitality. And I said at the beginning, without grumbling, without complaining. What does this mean? It means that you show practical kindness towards strangers. You show kindness towards visitors. That's why at the beginning, of the, uh, before I started preaching, I said, reach out to someone you don't know and greet them. You got to show kindness. Got to show kindness to visitors. You know, people walk into a church for the first time, they feel like, oh, I don't know nobody here. I wonder how many. How many of you have gone to a place where you have not been well received? Even in church, <laughs> many times you go to a church where you're not well received. It's happened. Trust me, it's happened. It's happened to me. And what is your feeling when you go to a church that you're not well received? You know something? Ain't coming back here. <laughs> they ain't getting me back in, in these doors. I ain't coming back here. So we got to show kindness if we're living like the end is near. We have to show hospitality. We have to go out of our comfort zone and start socializing and greeting and meeting people that normally we would not have greeted or met. Amen. When you and I show hospitality towards someone, it means to share what God has given us with someone else. How many know that what God has given you, whether it's money, whether it's material things, whether it's, whether it's talents and giftings, he didn't give it for you to hoard it. You know, I, I, I watch that show and I just can't believe how people could live like that. Hoarders, right? You've seen that show? People live and they, 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 they eat and they sleep surrounded by garbage and roaches and pests and everything and they keep bringing junk into the house and they keep garbage in the house for so long. Amen. And how many of you, isn't that disgusting? Guess what? It's equally as disgusting when we have gifts and talents and we don't share it in the kingdom of God. And I don't mean to offend you, but the same way that we see things in the physical, that's the same way God sees it in the spiritual. When you have giftings that God has given you, when you have abilities that God has given you, and you're using them out there for everything else but for the kingdom of God, guess what? God sees you as a hoarder. So if you're going to show hospitality, you got to use what God has given you. God didn't give you what you have so that you could hoard it for yourself. God gave it so you could share it. It's sad to say some people here are saving their money, saving their money, saving their money, saving all this money, and soon they die, and guess who gets to take advantage of it? Sometimes the people that could care less about your life, they never were concerned about you. I challenge you, I challenge you today, if you want to save some money, you want to invest some money after you're gone, put it into the kingdom of God. And it doesn't mean you have to put it into this church. I'm not, listen, whether you put it into this church or not, it doesn't matter. God is always going to provide. But find a, a, a work in the kingdom where you could put part of your retirement, part of your investment, part of whatever you're saving for your family. Put it into the kingdom of God because that, amen, the return for that is eternal. Saving money and sometimes these kids don't even care about us. That's why I ain't leaving mine much. They love me. I know they do, but I ain't leaving them much. Just leaving the house in the name of three, you sell it, and you split the, 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 whatever, the profit. But I ain't leaving them much. I ain't killing myself saving all this money. Amen. But no. And I love these guys, and I know they love me, but, but, but I'd rather invest it into the kingdom. And that's what I'm teaching them, and that's what I taught them. Amen. Because anything that I invest into the kingdom of God, amen, those rewards and those results and those, that, that return is eternal. I'm able to reap it even when I'm gone. I'm able to sow 
what I planted here on earth in the kingdom of God. So don't hold back on that money. And don't hold back on those talents and gifting. Not only money, but talents, gifting. If you can teach, teach. If you can preach, preach. Don't hold it back. Share it, whatever God has given you. Okay, we're moving. Last point. Last point. Amen. The last thing you want to do, and it's connected with this fourth point, is you want to serve. Not only do you want to be hospitable, not only do you not want to hold back your talents, but now you want to use what God has given you to serve others. That's verse number 10. Serve like though this day would be your last. And you notice what he says there. He says, as each has a gift, verse number 10, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And in order to, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So administer the gifts that God has given you as an administering grace of God. When we all put our gifts together, folks, when we all put our talents together, you know what happens? God is making this beautiful tapestry. Have you ever seen someone crocheting or knitting? When they start, it looks like nothing. And you look at these people and you say, oh, my God, that is so tedious work. And I just don't have the patience for that. It don't look like nothing. But as they continue to put those strings or whatever that, what they call that? Yarn. Yeah, yarn. I'm Puerto Rican. I don't use those words. Yarn. As they put the yarn together and it starts to take form, you start to see this beautiful. Sarai's been making these beautiful things for these kids, this uh, Christmas child project or whatever, and, and, and it's just beautiful, the stuff. She made a hat for my mother. My mother don't take that thing off. She wears that hat every day. If I let her in the house, because she loves what Sarai did. That didn't start like that, folks. That started with a, a little a yarn string or whatever. Amen. And she kept putting it together, different colors, and look what it turned out. Beautiful hat. Amen. Just hugging my mother's head. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And that's what God does when we all take our gifts and we put them together. He begins to build this beautiful tapestry. And then when the world sees us, they don't see us for who we are. They see Christ in us. They see this beautiful masterpiece that God is doing. And so as Christians, we are to bless one another with the gifts. Amen. Some cases that gift might be uh, going to the hospital and visiting the sick, going to a nursing home and visiting. Not everybody has that gift, but if you have that gift, you should utilize it. If you have the gift of cooking a meal for someone when they, when they can't cook for themselves, utilize that gift. Gift is not only getting up here and using the mic and, and speaking publicly. No, there's other things that you can do in the kingdom of God that are equally beneficial. That could bless a brother. If someone needs to, to uh, uh, ride to an appointment and they don't have a way to get there or they can't drive because they were recently operated, then you offer your car. If someone doesn't have money for gas, amen, and they can't get to church or they can't get to a doctor's appointment and you find out about it, then you, you don't say, I'm going to pray for you. Pray ain't going to put no gas in my tank. And if I'm hungry, your prayer ain't going to put no food on my table. You better get those two hands and get that stuff you got in your cupboards and cook me a good meal and say, Pastor, you, if you can't come to my house, I'm bringing it to you. And if I can't cook it, Pastor, I'm taking you out to eat. 
Praise the Lord. You know I like to go out to eat. Praise God. Hallelujah. Come on. Use your gifting. Stop hoarding your stuff. Share it with others. And as we do this, we're going to see God. We're going to see community evolve and develop. And we're going to see the glory of God in this room. I'm done. Some of you are good organizers. You're excellent with management. And I got people. Some of you, your gift is just to write a note that when people get it, and I know someone here that knows how to do that, but I ain't mentioning no names. But that's their gift. They will write you a note that will blow you out of your socks. And usually they, that person writes a note relevant to whatever you're going through at that moment. That's a gift. Not everybody could do that. If I was to write you a note every day, you might not like what I got to write. <laughs> but this person has a gift. And so they have a connection. Their gift gives them a connection with God. Amen. Vanessa has a gift. God reveals to her things. But what good is it if God reveals to her things that are beneficial to this congregation and she doesn't share them, right? So she shares them. That's a gift. So whatever your gift is, use it for the glory of God and for edifying the body of Christ. And as we do, we will see God's glory being manifested all over this house. Live your life as though this was your last day on earth. And put these five things to practice. And you're going to see your life is going to be so much more joyful and so much more delightful. Amen. Now, if you don't know Christ, let me tell you something. You better pray this ain't the last day. What you need to do is say, you know something? I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Because let me tell you something. Ain't no priest going to get you out of purgatory. I could guarantee you that. Ain't no rosary they're going to be able to pray for you. Once you're gone, you're gone. The only thing that could save you from hell and eternal condemnation is if you call upon the name of the Lord while you're alive. Then you shall be saved. So if you're not saved, all you got to do is call upon the name of Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And if you do that, you're saved. And then you start practicing this, you're saved. Now I want you to look at somebody that has a somber face and just smile at them and say, live your life. Stop being so. No te tan amargado y tan agriado. Y tan fastidiado. Y vive tu vida como que este es el último día. Contra. Come on. Come on. Live your life like this is the last day. Don't be so somber. Don't be so bitter. Don't be so, some people are so angry. We live in a world, we don't need to be angry. The world is angry enough. We need to be joyful people with a big smile. Hallelujah. God bless.